Our last speaker of the afternoon is Arthur Kim, who comes from just up the coast from Dr. Colson. Uh, he's an uh, associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's going to talk about hepatitis C infection management. Curing is caring. Arthur, thank you. Okay, how unheard of is it to be? running ahead of time. Uh, I will try to stay on time so we can all get out early and you can face traffic and getting to the airport and whatnot. So, um, so in this last talk, uh, I was asked to um, talk about uh, hepatitis C virus. So um, a virus that comes often with HIV and is often uh, uh, coexistent in that population. And so uh, I'll just put up my disclosures. If I talk about treatment of acute hep C, just know that there's no specific FDA-approved indication for that. And I will have a little tidbit um, hot off the presses regarding uh, glucaprevir piprentasvir. Um, that's the other challenge with a hep C talk where you can't use brand names. A, there is no brand name for this one. But also, you know, there's a lot of tongue twisters in these names. So I'll do my best. And um, <clears throat> typically, I'll talk about uh, first uh, discussion of modifiable risks for uh, liver disease progression. Uh, in brief, a few tidbits, counseling tips. If you are not involved directly in hep C therapy, there are still many things you can do to help uh, protect uh, your patients and potentially your own livers. Um, talk about the optimization of choosing antiviral regimens, again, a dizzying array of new drugs, and describe uh, overall, the rationale for enhanced screening, prevention, and treatment, there are actually talk uh, amongst many of us about elimination of co-infection from your clinic. And I don't know how many of you uh, are really close to achieving that. I, I, is anyone kind of thinking they're well on their way towards it? Yes, there you go. So if you're taking care of HIV patients, uh, they are well linked to care often or better linked to care, I should say, not always well linked, but well linked to care compared to mono infection. And so we really have an opportunity in our HIV clinics in particular to achieve um, uh, elimination. But in order to do that, we also need to prevent new cases. So I will begin by a bit of epidemiology and discussion of who's at risk. This is the audience response question. As, uh, there's no potentially right answer here. There's just a, an idea in the audience. Um, it's hard to gear a talk uh, to people who uh, may have varying degrees. I know some of you have treated at least as many people as I have. So these are the choices, whether you've tr um, not treated hep C, typically deferring to hepatology. Uh, you don't treat hep C, but there are others in your practice who do. There's a champion, perhaps, in your practice who, who does. And I, or I've just started within the last two years lucky you, or, or you've been treating for two to five years, five to 15, or greater than 15. So uh, I think I advance, and those are the choices. Oh, no music. I'm so, oh, I'm so sad. Oh, there's something. Oh, there you go. Okay. Let's see, I press forward, oh, no, there you go. All right, so, um, so I see many, um, there's some very experienced persons in the audience, um, uh, about uh, one sixth of you, but then the remainder have gotten more involved in the last years, but it seems like even the, the about half of you have not yet treated. Uh, I'm sure you have patients with hep C, right? 
Yes? Okay, good. So, um, so first we'll talk uh, about overall prevalence of hep C. Um, in the United States, it is three times as prevalent, if, if not more, than HIV. Um, the major source of our uh, knowledge about hepatitis C is uh, NHANES, which is a household-based survey, which requires people to, A, kind of be at home, answer phones, be at the door, et cetera, and, um, and agree to a, a long questionnaire about a multitude of health topics. And um, of these folks, um, we've learned a lot. We've learned that uh, on the upper right graph, that people born between 1945 and 65 have up to a 4% chance of uh, seroprevalence of hep C. It's higher if you're African-American, as high as 6 to 8% in that age group. And um, we also know that about half of those individuals were completely unaware of infection. I think if you think about the cascade for HIV, where we're trying to achieve you know, 90% of people were more aware of their infection, uh, we are well under that for hep C as of the, these surveys. And not included in a household-based survey would be a huge list of people who are at increased risk for hepatitis C, including those who are homeless, who are incarcerated, who are in the active military. Uh, they include healthcare workers. I guess we're working too hard to be at home to be included in this survey. I'd add, perhaps, young people. Um, I know my kids don't answer their phones um, when you call them. They only respond to Snapchat or something else. They barely respond to text these days. But uh, maybe young people are not signing up for this survey. So, um, and as we'll see, there are young people at risk. And so estimates can range, but uh, at least, again, three to four times as many people as uh, living with HIV. And another tidbit that's come out, just given that 1945 to 1965 uh, cohort of people who have a natural history of decades until cirrhosis, that's now crashing, that wave is crashing upon the shores of our hospitals, our wards, our ICUs, our liver transplant um, lists. And so um, at baby boomers may account for over two-thirds of cases, but as of a couple years ago, listed on death certificates, hepatitis C exceeds, as a cause of death listed, um, more than 59 other infections, 59. So, that includes HIV, that includes a variety of other causes. And this is taking into account that people who die of hepatitis C are often dying of, liver, of uh, complications of liver failure, bleeding, ascites, um, renal failure, sepsis. And um, I don't know how you filled out death certificates, but we were trained to just use blue ink, right? You just need to you choose the right pen. Um, but you may or may not list hepatitis C um, when you're filling out that death certificate, and the data do support that even this is likely an underestimate of uh, causes of death. So it's, hepatitis C could be classified as uh, close to the um, fifth or sixth leading cause of death amongst uh, adults currently sort of 55 to 65 uh, in that peak baby boom cohort. Now, I come from a state, Massachusetts, which happens uh, to have a very robust surveillance system. Every positive test um, hits DPH, our DPH, and gets counted. And so since uh, 2000, they've been really trying to count these cases. And what you find is in 2002 on the left, this same effect that we saw in the, in the previous national data, this two to one uh, male to female ratio, baby boomers are infected with hep C, have evidence in their blood of a positive antibody or an RNA. Fast forward um, 10 years later or more, and what you see now is this bimodal distribution of cases. You see a one to one ratio, of, this is a stacked bar of males and females um, in the under 30, and what is that driven by? Drug use, injection drug, I'm hearing 
drug use. So we're all aware that the country is, un, is, under, um, is in the midst of this pervasive opioid epidemic that's really quite widespread and I know has affected many uh, communities uh, both here in the Midwest as well as uh, on the coast. So um, what you'll even notice, if you can see, are some tests positive in, in infants. And those are likely maternally transmitted antibody tested a little bit too early, but illustrates that even with a low maternal to fetal transmission rate, that we're seeing those signals. And there's a report in the Annals of Internal Medicine just two days ago that um, reports on this. So just to show you the public health implications of our opioid epidemic and uh, what's occurring. Now, I, we're not far from Indiana. I understand some of you are from Indiana, and it's been alluded to earlier today. Um, Indiana uh, had this big outbreak, if you hadn't heard, I'm sure mo most of you have heard, of uh, amongst people who inject drugs um, in uh, Scott County, centered around Scott County. And as of this report, it was 135 cases, but it added up to uh, closer to eight, 180 cases of HIV all entirely preventable if there were clean needles and syringes. And despite the delays in rollout um, of, um, of the public health response, um, eventually with CDC arriving, they were able to stop HIV in its tracks through contact tracing, through mass testing, through, uh, and, and what did they find amongst these 180 individuals? Well, they found the vast majority of them already had hep C. That's not surprising based on what we know about the transmissibility of hep C, which is more transmissible per drop of blood that's in, that from an infected person than HIV. So um, there were hundreds of cases kind of around this outbreak of HIV, of hepatitis C, and yet very few people knew it, very few people had access to testing, and um, definitely did not have access to harm reduction measures such as opioid uh, agonist therapy and um, uh, 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 clean needles. It illustrates the importance of paying attention to hepatitis C. I mean, these are hundreds of cases that, if prevented, could have saved the state of Indiana quite a bit of money. But um, you know, that's that's be, that's only if we could turn back the clock and change some of our policies. But looking forward, um, we clearly need to pay attention to this population, screen for hepatitis C, and prevent it. Now, the other group that's high risk, uh, which are in your clinics, if you're uh, involved in an HIV clinic, are HIV-positive MSM. And this is the one slide which illustrates um, the sort of syndemic of sex, drugs, and not rock and roll, but sex, drugs, and HIV, uh, a syndemic of uh, different behaviors that results in enhanced transmission of transmucosal hepatitis C. So mostly uh, sexual. Many of the cohorts do have overlap with injection, so uh, such as injection crystal meth. But if you look at like the London cohort, about 20% may also inject substances. It seems like there are other modes of transmission which involve um, multiple exposures, semen exposures, which does contain hepatitis C virus, uh, trauma to the mucosa. Um, and um, while sildenafil and the internet do not directly transmit hep C, they kind of facilitate the encounters that uh, result in this. So I always have to say that. Also, persons with, living with HIV and hep C have higher viral loads in the plasma. Whether that correlates to semen is still uh, somewhat unknown, um, but is uh, postulated as a reason why um, uh, this is a, a, a syndemic. But also, the loss of gut um, mucosa, uh, lymphoid tissue, may be also be an issue. Local defenses may be less uh, robust and uh, facilitate HIV transmission in this setting. We'll return to this at the end, um, uh, presenting an abstract, an exciting abstract from Croy. So, Take-home points regarding screening, and again, I'm trying to cover really screening, evaluation, drug interactions, and treatment. I mean, this is like 30 minutes of like hep C 
bolus to you, so hopefully uh, we'll get something uh, out of it. But uh, it's a major cause of liver disease in our country. People at risk for uh, hep C are at risk for HIV and vice versa. And screening is effective. Uh, it's been shown to be cost-effective. It can be life-saving, particularly for baby boomers. And so um, uh, uh, whom to screen, we're really targeting, again, those baby boomers, those with past and ongoing risk factors. Um, injection drug use and HIV-positive uh, MSM are the major targets. Now, how do we screen in our clinics? We're supposed to screen yearly for HIV-positive, sexually active, HIV-positive uh, MSM, and um, one would argue women as well. So um, this would identify it earlier. If you're aware, then maybe you would uh, get treated and become aviremic and be unable to transmit further. Now, um, for those who are already antibody positive and have cleared the virus either on their own or through treatment, they can get reinfected. And so for those individuals already antibody positive, you're supposed to use an HCV RNA test. Now, what's not listed here are reacting to bumps in your liver function tests. So, you know, I think in, in Ryan White clinics, right, we're still checking every three months basic labs. If you see that increase in um, uh, LFTs, one of the main causes could be new viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis C. And so a natural reaction, if it's a minor bump, is to say, well, we'll just check it next time. But in those three months, uh, the patient may not be, uh, may be out there transmitting the virus and unaware of their status. And so it's an argument to get people back and um, make sure that they're ruled out for hepatitis C. Now, turning a bit to evaluation and treatment. So here, um, just to state very clearly, the goals of treatment um, is to reduce all the liver-related uh, morbidity and mortality, transmission, et cetera, um, by achievement of virologic cure. So we began the day talking about HIV cure. We have hep C cure for a vast majority of people, don't we? And, um, and so um, we call that a sustained virologic response. If you're not familiar with that, that's 12 weeks after the cessation of therapy, you remain negative for hep C RNA. That means that you've cured from that previous infection, again, potentially able to get reinfected. But uh, if you achieve that, that is a long-lasting cure that lasts for years um, and um, will not relapse at that point. So treatment is recommended for all persons with hep C infection, regardless of stage and whatnot. So, um, you know, while one may prioritize those with cirrhosis or with uh, more symptomatic disease, I mean, how many of you, if infected, would actually wait until you had advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis? You wouldn't do that for yourself or a family member. You would treat earlier. You would treat an individual, like we do for many other infectious diseases, earlier to prevent further onward transmission. Moreover, to tie in a little bit, I try to tie into each of the talks, to uh, Steve Grinspoon's talk, uh, hep C in many HIV hep C cohorts is associated when you control for other factors with a marginal increase in cardiac events. It's in there's increased insulin resistance risk with hepatitis C infection. There's neurocognitive disorders. So all said, you don't want this virus. It's a negative thing. Get rid of it. Cure it. So um, this is a kind of circle slide of different components of hep C care. A reminder, I can't go over each of the points that hepatitis C care is more than about just applying the antivirals. It's about counseling, about transmission. We tell people not to use toothbrushes or um, razors. Um, a little paranoid, but I mean, we're ID, right? So we tend to be uh, OCD about such things. Um, and then also, um, we talk about liver health. And we tell people, what? Not to drink alcohol 
right? We know that's throwing fuel onto the fire of hepatitis C. And uh, we assess all the other uh, issues that could interfere with treatment, substance use, uh, psychosocial, homelessness, housing, all those things. Um, weight is an important issue. Um, increasingly at the CROI conference, we're hearing more about uh, increasing weight in fatty liver, and I think that's uh, very uh, uh, bad thing, and so we do counsel our hep C patients in particular not to gain weight or if they're overweight to try to lose weight. Um, and other aspects, uh, one is actually coffee. So um, to summarize um, uh, a large number of, of um, standing O for coffee. All right, I, I don't have my visual aid today, nor do I have any, dis any um, do, do I take any money from Starbucks, but here, in the French cohort of HIV, they were able to look at co-infected individuals and look at why they died, et cetera. So there are several points from this pretty recent study of the 77 deaths that HCV continues to be a major cause of mortality in uh, co-infected individuals. Um, HCV-related causes were 42% of those deaths. And when one looks at the uh, risk factors for death, none of these really should surprise us, such as unstable housing, lower CD4 count. Curing hep C is great, so you prevent that. Uh, female gender did better in the study. Not drinking did better, or lower drinking. Uh, the French define abstinence, I think, a little differently than we do. So, um, <laughs> but three or more coffee in this cohort was independently associated with uh, improved mortality. So I do counsel my patients about that. Um, now, uh, care, again, uh, these are just a list of um, aspects. Again, in 30 minutes, it's very hard to teach someone how to deal with all the issues related to uh, hepatitis C care, but um, there are many resources on the IAS USA website, and there are even workshops uh, around the country, um, both in the future as well as uh, online, that, that can help here. So preventing liver progression, avoiding alcohol, weight gain, coffee we talked about, avoiding HIV, you don't want co-infection, it makes the um, process uh, run much faster. You lose 10 years of uh, natural history there, uh, 10 years faster to cirrhosis. And then the other aspect is uh, anticipating potential toxicities and drug interactions, a major topic for co-infected individuals. Um, a topic that I wish I could go into more, um, but is non-invasive liver staging. So with that, um, we're less reliant on liver biopsy, which was a major sort of choke point and barrier since patients didn't want to do it. It sounded invasive. They had to go through multiple appointments to get there. They were also very expensive. So now we have newer options for non-invasive liver staging that are working out in co-infected individuals as well. So uh, how many of you have access to a fiber scan? Just show of hands, okay? I'm sorry, upstairs. I'm imagining your hands. So um, there you go. So that's that's actually much better if, than compared to previous um, polls that I've taken at, in these venues. All right, so uh, interactions, uh, again, uh, deserving really of, of a longer talk. But um, a patient's being considered, you have to review the meds, and that's a major reason for close uh, evaluation. Uh, dietary and herbal supplements, um, uh, their St. John's work, for instance, interferes with many of the medications. And you screen for interactions, and I'll show you on the next slide a, an excellent tool for that, the hepatitisdruginteractions.org. Um, counsel these patients during therapy, um, particularly regarding antacids, which we'll go over when we reach that particular drug, um, and then avoid uh, other interactions. Now, the website that I'm talking about, there's an HIV parallel one, uh, is at the University of Liverpool. Um, and what you do is you pretty much click on a hep 
hepatitis drug on the left column, click all their co-medications, and it's, it's very rare when I found, even though it's a UK-based site, a US-based um, medication that's not on there. And then um, hit click, and then it turns to something like that, where it says avoid. So here you're seeing, um, what is this? Uh, Elvisergrazopavir with oxcarbazepine, a seizure medication, also used as a, a mood stabilizer, uh, a very common one that we uh, encounter in our population. So here you can um, uh, manage these, learn it yourself, um, et cetera. Now another issue is hepatitis B reactivation. I do have to say, most of our co-infected patients are on anti-hep B therapy, so even if they have evidence of past or uh, hepatitis B, they're usually suppressed since they're on dual therapy based on tenofovir. But um, I do have to mention it because um, for mono-infected patients, since many of you might be getting involved in that, there is this phenomenon of hep B reactivation. Now, we knew about hep B reactivation uh, from immunosuppression, particularly rituximab has it on their package insert. It can be devastating. But uh, even um, chemotherapy, there are many cases of um, sort of a woman from China presenting with breast cancer, going through the treatments, and Unfortunately, no one screened for hep B, and they present with fulminant liver failure, um, a couple cases at our hospital. So those are um, things that could have been prevented with, with uh, proper screening. Now, it has been reported, interestingly, with hep C, hep B co-infection. Now, you may ask, well, what's going on there? Well, we don't really know the mechanism, but hep B and hep C are, can go together, right? So co-infection can occur. Um, it seems like when you would draw one of the viruses, there seems to be a bystander immune effect that's removed and allows the other one to arrive. Um, it's the best explanation I can give you for right now, but that seems to be a phenomenon. There's one case of someone with a core antibody only. If you recall from hep B, what that means is past exposure and recovery, but no active DNA or surface antigen. And that patient um, uh, experienced a, a severe outcome, uh, fulminant liver failure. But the rate seems to be very low. The denominator for that must be very low. Many people have that profile in clinical trials, and they, when they looked back, they did not find any cases of reactivation. So it must be the denominator in the hundreds or so, if not larger, of reactivation in that setting. Moreover, that patient did get uh, other immune modulators. It was way before 18 months, but was not perfectly immunologically normal. So one approach is to first make sure that hepatitis B surface antigen gets tested as you start hep C treatment. They may have been screened years ago, but why not, for safety, do it again? Uh, similar to PrEP, right? We've got to make sure they don't have hep B. And then monitor um, for the core antibody only, I think just doing the routine monitoring with LFTs is plenty. Uh, for surface antigen, you probably want to co-treat the hep B as well. If they have any fibrosis, there are candidates for treatment anyway. If they have zero fibrosis and wouldn't meet criteria for hep B treatment, it's an individualized decision, but you may also consider prophylaxis in that setting. Now, hep C treatment in a nutshell, in a short period of time. Um, so, um, oh, by the way, I skipped over slides regarding the antiretrovirals. Um, we'll return to that as I go through these medications. Uh, I'll mention uh, a bit what's compatible, but again, use that website because that's very helpful. Now, there's uh, the hep C life cycle. I, I think the HIV life cycle may have been shown earlier, but here uh, the major differences are, one, no DNA intermediate. It's an RNA-RNA polymerase. You don't see any DNA permanent infection. So that's a very important counseling point for the patients. Patients often are, uh, think that it's a lifelong infection. They mistake it because 
Um, they hear the antibody stays positive for life, so that means you must have infection. In fact, a frequent call we get is from a cured patient. They get tested elsewhere, and they say, I have hep C again. That's what they told me, but it really is just the antibody test, which is just exposure, so you need the right test. So um, the other uh, feature is that we have three points in the life cycle where we hit, and we inhibit using protease inhibitors, polymerase inhibitors, and NS5A inhibitors. So these are um, uh, well-established. Um, now and in combination can take out uh, hepatitis C at very high rates. It's kind of like HIV drug development kind of all on speed, just happening all at once in a very short time frame, very exciting stuff, a, a revolution in therapeutics. The other aspect is to remember genotypes. The major issue for genotypes is the, how you match up treatment these days, although as I'll show you, there are pan-genotypic regimens where, uh, in all honesty, maybe genotypes won't matter in the future, but for now, you do need to know the genotype to, to get your patients treated. And this is just the worldwide distribution where 1A predominates in our country. I will point out that genotype 3 is expanding in both HIV-positive MSM but also particularly in people who inject drugs. So it's about 10% in baby boomers. It's up to 30 or 40% nowadays in young injection drug users. So you will, if you see that, it's not a rare genotype in recent transmission. Um, so I'll classify the medications, the alphabet soup of uh, hep C drugs as opposed to the HIV drugs. Uh, it's color-coded with apologies to anyone who's red, green, colorblind. Uh, we have peg interferon, ribavirin, the first-generation protease inhibitors in green, the next-generation protease inhibitors, and then NS5A inhibitors in blue, and then uh, both non-nuke and nuke um, uh, nucleotide, in this case, sofosbuvir. Um, and then applying it to a variety of genotypes, and that's the distribution of genotypes uh, about 10 years ago in the, our liver clinic. So um, we no longer use the peganeferon and riba. I think those will go, I'm sorry, peganeferon. We rarely use riba in certain select situations, such as uh, uh, decompensated uh, liver disease, as, as well as potentially retreatment situations, and we no longer use first-generation protease inhibitors. So just like we drop them in uh, HIV, we've, we're just moving really quickly here. It's like, so, um, in the interferon era, there were a variety of uh, characteristics that were associated with non-response. And um, when you have studies, as I'll show you and as you've heard, that have 95% response rates, you, know, you have a very small number of relapses. So it's very hard to sort out, like, what are the predictors of those relapses? But very early on, we looked at ribavirin and sofosbuvir, you know, the, one of the first regimens, 12 weeks and 24 weeks, as well as PEG ribosoft, and just a, kind of pooled data regarding these individuals. And then looking at six different factors, which were each associated with um, poor responses to interferon in the past, looking forward, what the novel regimen seemed to do is, is be able to overcome one, two, three, even you know, multiple of these risk factors. But once you reach four, five, or six, you begin to see perhaps an additive effect of these, each of these factors. So each of these factors sort of persist in, in the, uh, as you'll see with some of these regimens, as, um, as, as, as issues. But in the end, um, uh, so height of viral load, um, uh, uh, cirrhosis, for instance. One could also add to that list resistance-associated mutations, a new topic for hep C as well. And so, as of last June, and we're expecting a couple new regimens in this summer, um, these are the FDA-approved treatments. Uh, again, we'll kind of focus on these, um, and in fact, even start to gray out some of them. I used to try to present all of these, but just really a challenge in, in, in a 30-minute talk. But, um, so these are the combinations and the genotypes for which they're approved. And you'll notice at the bottom, the one approved for all genotypes. And so, um, the cure rates are 
great. So you know, I can show slide after slide that looks like this. It's curate on the left, on the uh, y-axis, and different studies. This is like five New England Journal articles all on one slide. But here you see um, close to 95% response rates for 12 weeks of one regimen, the paratavivir, ritonavir, bitisvir, dasabivir. Oh, I wish I could say the brand name. Um, and I'll just abbreviate that as prod in the future. And lodipasir sofosivir, 12 weeks. Now, on the um, uh, rightmost column is uh, lodipasir and sofosivir for just eight weeks. And this was applied and achieved um, for patients who are naive, so not treatment experienced, and who are non-serotic. And so those are, uh, a, um, if you go back, uh, sort of positive factors related to um, uh, uh, treatment response from the interferon era. So lodipasir sofosivir is widely used. It's used in co-infection, and there's an excellent trial for that called ION4. Um, the major considerations are that right now there are few data for patients with um, advanced uh, kidney disease, stage 4 and 5. Uh, right now for cirrhosis, for upfront patients who have never been treated before, there's no dose adjustment. Cirrhosis doesn't modulate as much the, um, the overall response rates in naive patients. Um, uh, drug interactions are important. Now, avoid co-administration with amiodarone, okay, together. That produces bradycardia. This may be on an exam later is what I hear. Um, and avoid with certain medications. I've mentioned one of them before. Now, the major issue with this drug is antacids. It's amazing how many patients are all just on Prilosec on their med lists. It's just started in the hospital. They're on it. They forgot why they're on it, and it, they're still on it. Or they have real heartburn, and they're popping Tums all the time. Um, so... This is an issue that's, that needs counseling and that can be um, modulated. You're allowed to have patients on a dose uh, or equivalent dose of omeprazole. If they are on omeprazole, I advise patients to take something acidic with it. Now, uh, you can shorten lodipasir sofosivir to eight weeks in, the, uh, in a mono-infected trial. There's no co-infected randomized trial that shows this. Now, real-world data seem to confirm efficacy, but real-world data are not a um, uh, randomized controlled trial. And so generally, African-Americans are underrepresented um, in um, these clinical trials. And there's one sub-analysis showing a lower rate in African-Americans using the eight-week regimen. And so at this time, there's a caution. But for patients with viral loads less than 6 million and non-cirrhosis, this can be an attractive regimen, both from an adherence standpoint as well as cost. Now, the PROD regimen can matter for cirrhosis. There was a drop-off if one were treatment experience um, and uh, null responder in this case. And so currently, it's recommended to increase the regimen duration to 24 weeks. But you can shorten this regimen as well. So if you have positive factors, in this case, 1B virus responds better than 1A. And if they're similar to the previous patients, naive and non-serotic, a recent trial showed eight weeks of this regimen, again, without ribavirin, which you don't need for 1B, you do need it for 1A, can uh, show efficacy. So these are the considerations for PROD if you're using that. Uh, the Elbisvir-Grizopavir also had excellent um, efficacy for genotypes 1 and 4. Genotype 6 did not have a lot of patients, so it's only approved for 1 and 4. Cirrhosis does not affect this, showing the two columns, cirrhosis and non-cirrhotic. Um, doesn't affect the response rates at all, but what does is resistance-associated mutations. So this is the table, depending on the technique you use. Um, if you have uh, certain resistance mutations, you have lower response rates to this regimen. What's recommended is to not only baseline test for those particular regimens, but also extend therapy to 16 weeks and add ribavirin. So those are the major considerations for Elvis or Grisopavir. The mutations, extension, Right now, we avoid 
protease inhibitors and decompensated cirrhosis, and there are drug interactions as usual. Now, this one has excellent response rates for stage 4 or 5 kidney disease. Then there's uh, this trial for um, pan-genotypic regimen. This is actually um, a couple of trials, which um, shows efficacy for all genotypes. Really, uh, one size fits all to a certain level, a little bit lower perhaps for three if you have cirrhosis, but in the end, that is still an excellent regimen. It's the best available option for genotypes 2-3. I told you I'd include something new, and this is the glucaprosvir piprendesvir regimen uh, for eight or 12 weeks, and this shows, again, for, again, all genotypes are included, includes some co-infected patients, really fantastic results. Eight weeks um, versus 12, eight weeks was equivalent. I mean, really sounding like a wonderful regimen that will be approved this um, summer. And, and just recently presented were data regarding, that didn't make it in time for these slides, uh, in co-infected patients and their drug interactions. And a wide variety of different regimens were compatibilized. So do we do an HIV, kind of pick off the menu, present nine choices the way um, Dr. Sag does? Do we do that? You know, choose, it says no alcohol during treatment, so there's no wine list. Um, that's about ribavirin. No, we are forced into like, if you're gonna choose one of these, you choose the other. They're, they're, they come together, right? So that each company kind of has their own little, little types of different regimens that they'll give you. Now, again, is this really how we choose? Well, unfortunately not. This is really the main mechanism of how we know what type of medication we have. We ask the insurer, and then we fill out these forms. And you'll notice like on pretty much, this is, happens to be the Illinois one, I try to match it to the state I'm in, uh, active substance use, including submission of drug tests, et cetera. So this is the menu, perhaps. Does anyone recognize this? There was a clue earlier in the talk. Seinfeld, Seinfeld what's the episode? Oh, the soup. soup Nazi. So what does it feel like to, to choose from the menu these days? This is often what it feels like when we're trying to treat remote patients. So our cascade, unfortunately, does not look as good. And I'm sorry I'm running over, but um, it does not look as good as HIV. Each step along the path generally does not look as good, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's a silent infection that's not quite as dramatic, doesn't present as quickly, even though there is that latent period for HIV, it takes decades until cirrhosis. So you're not necessarily seeing those early OIs a few years after uh, HIV seroconversion. Um, then uh, you need to be tested, you need to be linked to care. We do not have a Ryan White program. We do not have ways to necessarily link all mono-infected patients. And then many are underinsured and whatnot. And even if you link them to care, then they get that no soup for you notice. And that's really unfortunate. Because in order to improve this cascade, we really have to work on all these elements. Right now, we're in the midst of this rising opioid epidemic. There's potentially lack of prevention services where you are. It's an asymptomatic infection. So to reduce that prevalence, um, you know, either patients need to die or they need to be cured. Uh, we really need to open that spigot to kind of reduce that middle. And so a couple tidbits to help you combat and the thinking that's behind hep C restrictions. One is this study that looks at patients on opioid agonist therapy. Firstly, patients on opioid agonist therapy, are they clean of drugs in your experience? Not necessarily. So you do drug testing regularly while on treatment, and they are widely positive for opioids, benzos, heroin, all sorts of things on this map. What is their adherence to medications as measured in this trial? Great. Now maybe there's a difference with HIV. Maybe they see cure at the end of the road, so they're feeling good about these, and it's a shorter term. It's, it's not lifelong. So that's one tidbit. 
The other tidbit I'll leave you with is one of the more exciting abstracts from the CROI meeting. I know six of you, six percent of you intended that, but this is looking at uh, the Dutch. And so the Dutch um, have a treatment cascade they can measure at 10 different centers or somewhere around that, um, all the co-infected individuals, and they have a lot of HIV-positive MSM who have been infected in the last decade, even reinfected after um, being treated. So here um, they're looking at um, SVRs, and they're achieving great SVRs, and they think that they've cured 70% of all their co-infected patients. Now, HIV-positive individuals, um, the MSM are more likely to access treatment compared to women in former IDU, another sort of disparity. But in the end, most of their cases in HIV-positive individuals are happening in uh, MSM. And so what happened when they de-restricted is that they, in 2014, they had 93 cases. In 2016, they had half the number after mass sort of access to treatment. Now, um, you may ask, well, maybe there was just less circulating, there was less behaviors, but really all, syphilis rates, LGV rates were exactly the same. I don't think behavior changed in the course of a year. And so this is indirect evidence, but pretty good evidence that cure as prevention for hep C may work. And so the take-home points, we have potent regimens. We have great regimens that can match up to patients, whether they have kidney disease, whether they have co-infection. There are ways to treat the vast majority of patients with a 12-week regimen, sometimes even shorter. Special populations are being addressed, but really it's the highest risk populations, whether it's HIV-positive MSM or people who inject drugs that must be addressed to improve the cascade of care and really achieve what we need to do to eliminate hep C as a public health problem in the United States. Thank you for your attention. And there's some additional resources here. Thank you. Oh, these are good. Okay, so will we, I'm sorry, will we event, did, did you want to host them or no? Okay. All right, the first question. Will we eventually recommend resistance testing before treatment? So this is an interesting question. So uh, I do have to say ID providers and HIV providers in particular love the resistance test. We are very used to baseline resistance testing and guiding therapy. Now it turns out that for certain regimens, it matters not so much, like if a patient's naive to therapy, non-serotic, and et cetera, they don't have a lot of risk factors, and so even some resistance is not futile. Remember, um, the way um, testing works for uh, hep C, it's really uh, looking at a population level of the quasi-species. It detects, you know, depending on the threshold, at a 10% or 15% level, you know, whether there's a resistance mutation. Um, and um, there's a lot of wild-type virus, and you're also adding a, usually a drug that works against that virus. So as it turns out, it's not like you see a mutation, and that means you can never use that drug. In fact, if any of you have received these reports, they're kind of annoying because there's a mutation, and then it says resistance possible. That's what it tells you because, in all honesty, you could possibly use that agent. It's not like HIV where you get a uh, resistance result in K103N or something, and then you don't use something. So there, for the Merck regimen, how, I'm sorry, the, um, the Elbisvir grisoprovir, I shouldn't use names, um, that is one that, that actually you do need resistance testing um, as in the case that I showed you, but not widely. All right, uh, that's another great question. Why are boomers at greater risk for hep C? This is a great question. So there was a, um, uh, basically, uh, inattention to universal precautions, I would say. It was, didn't really exist as a word back then, and, and HIV came along and changed all that, and then our hospital practices became much more tighter. And so, um, all the things we were doing, you know, giving injections into 20th century, we give, gave lots of injections, vaccines, blood transfusions, et cetera, blood products, dialysis, all of these things, if not perfectly clean, can transmit hep C. And so, 
we as a society built a lot of the hep C and the baby boom, then throw in the drug using epidemic, then throw in paid drug users who would often introduce hep C into the hospital system um, because they were taking cash for their blood. And so a lot of that changed, well, pretty much all of it changed with HIV. Now we still see um, nosocomial transmission in our country. Uh, in Las Vegas, like there was an endoscopy clinic that didn't pay attention to this. There were lots of acute cases just from this high throughput uh, endoscopy clinic that didn't have uh, good techniques. There was a dentist who used different instruments for his Medicaid patients who have higher rates of hep C. And uh, there was one HIV transmission because he didn't replace those instruments and they were all rusted out. It's pretty awful. Um, so, you know, it shows you how important infection control is. And throughout the world, actually, it remains an important reason why people get hep C. I meet people all the time, and that leads to the immigrants. Uh, should immigrants also be screened for hepatitis C? Um, uh, so if an immigrant is in the birth cohort, just screen them. They've lived long enough, and they probably lived in a country where they had um, uh, at least uh, U.S. Um, at least uh, universal precautions that were not as good as the U.S. So there's reason to do the baby boom. Whether you should do all immigrants is actually an area of active study, and it may depend on the country they're from. But in the end, uh, right now, there's not a universal recommendation for all immigrants. I find a lot in Albanians, in um, other Eastern European countries, Russia, et cetera, um, Greece, et cetera. Uh, any evidence of cost-effectiveness in the birth cohort? Yes, so there, uh, I don't present that, those data anymore. Um, baby boomer screening is one of the few uh, public health interventions, if fully implemented, which may save uh, hundreds of thousands of American lives. That's crazy. There are no other interventions that we could apply today on a mass basis that would do that other than banning smoking, I guess, or something like that. So, um, And then what are the differences of costs of hep C meds in the U.S. and Holland? So part of this is... Uh, a lack of transparency regarding costs. I know Mike showed a slide earlier uh, about HIV meds and how um, uh, similarly the $1,000 a day, almost nobody pays that in our country. So um, patients often are freaked out by the cost of these meds. And you know, one thing I tell them is, you know, you are worth every penny of that, right? I mean, we are taking out an infection that's, that's gonna extend your life on average 20 years. And you know, that is worth you know, a lot more than uh, eighty or $90,000. But the true costs are often negotiated down, and it depends on where you're at. Um, I know Illinois has had its issues getting access. Um, and then uh, I think I've run through, oh, there's one more. Is being a boomer really a risk worth population screening in the many who never use IV drugs? Well, I'll tell you plenty of stories of people referred to me who were baby boomers who do not list a blood transfusion, who do not list IV drugs, and yet are positive. Um, many, if you go back to that NHANES survey, a good proportion of individuals do not report that history. And you can argue, well, maybe they're just not reporting it because it's associated with stigma, et cetera. But in reality, you know, I believe them. I believe that um, poor medical, dental, and other practices throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s help promote hep C transmission in our country. And believe me, we meet them all the time, uh, baby boomers without risk factors. Okay, thank you.